passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. When I was a high schooler, uh, I went to a Christian conference in Kansas City uh, with a, a few other people from my church. And like many of our graduating seniors uh, this morning, I, I was increasingly being asked the question, what am I going to do with my life? Many of our seniors have no idea what that means, right? Have no idea what that question is like. It is a question that is frequently asked of those who are in high school, especially uh, those who are facing graduation. And it was a question for me that was uh, increasingly on my mind, but it was also a question that I really didn't have an answer for. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And during this conference, there was a, a brief presentation and this presentation was about short-term mission trips uh, to South America. And as this pre presentation went on and on, it's probably only five or ten minutes long, but uh, every single moment, every single second of that presentation seemed like it was lasting for forever. Because as I heard more and more about these opportunities for high school students to go and to serve, I became more and more anxious in fact, I remember actually leaving the arena that this conference was being held at before the presentation was over because I couldn't bear to hear any more. You might be saying, well, why is that? Well, it's because at that moment I had a sinking suspicion that if I continued to listen to that presentation about missions, about missionaries, about being coming a missionary, even for just a short amount of time, then God was going to force me to become a missionary. And so I decided to leave the arena. Something, uh, becoming a missionary was something I had zero desire to do at the time. And so I decided to leave the room thinking that if I didn't hear the rest of the presentation, if I didn't hear more about mission work, then I could plead ignorance about God's will for my life. It didn't work out well for Jonah, but for some reason I thought it would work out for me. Now, perhaps you aren't that foolish as, as young Jordan was. Perhaps you've read the book of Jonah and you realize that just because we decide to leave doesn't mean that uh, that's going to work out too well in, in leaving or ignoring God's plans. But when we ask the question, what is God's will for my life? I think sometimes we can have that same tendency as young Jordan did. We can assume the worst. We can assume that God doesn't care about us. He's uncaring. He's inconsiderate. He's only concerned with his agenda, and he couldn't care less about what you want to do with your life, about your desires, and about your giftings. And hopefully over these past couple weeks as we've looked at the idea or, or the, the discussion on, on discovering God's will for our life, uh, it's, it's been one that's kind of put that myth to bed. We've sensed that that, mis that worldview is, is really quite mistaken. In our first week on this topic, we laid the foundation for seeking God's will in our life, and we saw what God's will for our lives really is. For every single person on the planet, every single person throughout human history, God has a will for your life, and it is for you to be saved, it is for you to be filled with the Spirit, and it is for you to become holy just like Him. And these three truths that we looked at a couple weeks ago, they set the boundaries for our pursuit of God's will in our lives, wherever we are, whatever we are faced with, especially when we are faced 
with big decisions. Now, that doesn't, of course, that doesn't make our big decisions any easier because there are countless options still available to those who are saved, to those who are filled with the Spirit, to those who are holy. And so the next week or last week, we laid out the theological framework for us asking questions or how to make these big decisions in our lives, that God has given us the tools to make decisions that honor Him, that are wise, that honor Christ. And this morning, I want us to do something by looking at the book of Acts. I want us to to look at what this looks like in the life of the early church, how the early church made a decision, how the early church was faced with a difficult decision and and used that opportunity as a way for them to grow in faith, grow in maturity, grow in Christ-likeness, which is God's goal for us as well. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15 because I think that this uh, chapter 15 lays out one of the most important questions ever facing the, the church, not just in the Bible, but throughout church history. I think this is, if not the most important, one of the most important moments in church history. And I'll explain why that isn't hyperbole here in a few moments. The book of Acts can be a little bit confusing for us when we are looking at it through the lens of of decision-making. How did the early church make decisions? How did God guide the early church as they were faced with God's mission? If you remember, or if you're familiar with the book of Acts, God gives the people, uh, uh, his disciples, this charge, this mission. He gives them the Holy Spirit, and then he sends them to work. And this group of people that are from a very diverse background, uh, probably only numbering about 500 at the time, God charges them with a mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as we look at the book of Acts, we can kind of be confused about how this was accomplished. For example, Acts chapter 1 tells us how the, the apostles decided how they were going to replace Judas Iscariot as an apostle. It says this in Acts chapter 1. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles." This is one of the biggest decisions uh, for the church at that moment, up to this point. It's an important moment for the early church because they have to find someone to, to fill the place of Judas Iscariot who had died. But it also raises all sorts of questions. For starters, how are Barsabbas, Judas, how, how is Matthias, how are these two men put forward? Where do they come from? The text just tells us that they put forward two. Well, how did they decide? Did they just take applications, or how did these two get put forward? And then after these two were chosen, they decided to cast lots. They decided to essentially roll dice to see which one would be chosen. And so when we are faced with decisions, should we do the same? Should we be casting lots to make our decisions? Another example Acts chapter 17 tells us of one of the most important, one of the most powerful stories or or sermons given in the early church. It's Paul's speech in Athens at the Areopagus. Uh, You may be familiar with this, but have you ever noticed the context of Paul's sermon? 
Paul is speaking to all of these pagans, and he's telling them the gospel, and it's very powerful because it's a very different type of sermon than everything else that he has done to this point, because he's not speaking to Jews. He's not speaking to people who have any context of the Jewish Messiah or of Israel. He's instead speaking to people who have no framework, no no way of thinking about the Messiah, about thinking about Jesus. And so he talks at this moment about the, the God of all creation. It's a powerful, powerful passage. But have you ever noticed how Paul begins this speech? Acts chapter 17, verse 16 tells us this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And that's it. Paul is waiting for his friends to meet him in Athens before they continue their work before they go elsewhere to do the ministry that they feel called to do. He's essentially on a layover. He has no intention of starting a mission in the city of Athens. He has no intention of of staying there. But as he's waiting for his friends, he decides to go walk around the city. And as he's walking around the city, he sees how broken the city is. He sees how full with idolatry the city is. And his heart is compelled to do something. Completely spur of the moment. And so as we read this, we ask the question, well, are we supposed to throw all of our plans to the wind as well and completely be led in the moment by our heart being compelled to do things? We can look at countless examples from the book of Acts, but what about Acts chapter 21, verse 4? Probably the most confusing when thinking about seeking God's will for our lives. It says this, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul goes to Jerusalem anyway. So did Paul ignore God's will? Did Paul sin? Was Paul disobedient by going to Jerusalem, even though, according to this verse, the Spirit was telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem? And we can look at at countless other examples from the book of Acts that make this a very confusing topic. But I think, with, with just a few exceptions, the way God's people make decisions in the early church is found in Acts chapter 15. Every single time that we see special revelation uh, for a decision in the book of Acts, there are two qualifiers, every single one. One, it has to do with the gospel. It doesn't have to do with decisions uh, that oftentimes face us. It's a specific charge related to the gospel. And second, it has to do with a specific significant jump that the gospel is making. So God specifically guides his people when the gospel is jumping from the Jews to the Samaritans. God gives specific guidance for the people when the gospel jumps from the Jews and Samaritans to the Gentiles or from Asia Minor to Macedonia. Every single time that God provides special revelation for his church is when they're doing something new that they wouldn't have done without God's guidance. And the question is, can God do the same today? Of course he can. God is, after all, God. He can provide special revelation. He is uh, not beholden to anyone or anything. And yet, for the most part, we shouldn't plan on that. We shouldn't plan on special revelation for our decisions. Instead, God has given us the tools to make those decisions. And that's what I believe the book of Acts tells us, specifically Acts chapter 15. It's simply this. If you have the Spirit, 
If you have the scriptures and if you have the local church, then you have all the tools necessary to make a decision. Let me say that again. If you have the spirit, if you have the scriptures, and if you have the local church, then you have all the tools necessary to make your decision. There are, of course, exceptions to that. If you are facing a a controversial surgery, uh, it's not enough to simply just talk to others in the local church. You should go talk to someone who has expertise in that field. But you start with the scriptures. You start with the spirit that fills, uh, it, that lives inside you, and you start with the early church. So let's see how this works out in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15. I mentioned earlier, I think this is the most important moment in church history. That's not hyperbole. It is a crisis facing the early church. The, the decision made in Acts chapter 15 will either split or destroy the church, or it will bring them together and galvanize them for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And to help us understand the significance of this chapter, the significance of this moment, the gravity of this moment, let's take a moment and just look at the first two decades or so of the early church. And you might be saying, wow, two decades and just a moment. I know, Jordan, this isn't going to be just a moment at all. Now, Acts chapter 15 takes place after 14 chapters of the book of Acts. And the first 14 chapters take place over the first 17 years or so of the early church. As we're all probably aware, Christianity starts in Judaism. It grows out of Judaism. It is the fulfillment of God's plan, God's promise in the Old Testament. Jesus is the king of all people, yes, But first and foremost, he is a Jewish Messiah. First and foremost, he is the promised king of the Jews. All of his earliest apostles were Jewish. And with a few notable exceptions that the Gospels highlight very clearly, Jesus' ministry completely takes place in the Judean country. It was among Jewish people. It follows that the early church would become primarily Jewish as well. So the first nine chapters of the book of Acts, about the first nine chapters of Acts, take place over about three to four years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. So nine chapters take place over the course of the first three or four years of the early church. And during this time, there were significant numbers of Jewish converts to Christianity, Acts chapter 2 tells us that uh, the converts weren't just centralized in Jerusalem, but because of Pentecost, there were people from every nation, every location in the known world in Jerusalem, and the gospel spread through them as they went back to their homelands. But the gospel was only among the Jews. In fact, we see that the sole missionary endeavor of the people of Israel, or excuse me, the uh, sole missionary endeavor of the Jewish people, the Jewish church at that time, was among the Jewish people of Jerusalem. Peter and the apostles, even though Jesus had charged them to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, stayed in Jerusalem. And it wasn't until Acts chapter 8 tells us, it's a fascinating verse, Acts chapter 8 verse 1 tells us of how the gospel began to spread. Anyone know how the gospel began to spread? It wasn't through special revelation. It was through persecution. 
Acts chapter 7 tells us of the death and the martyrdom of Stephen. And then Acts chapter 8 tells us that this great persecution broke out against the church. And the disciples, the followers of Jesus, were scattered. They were spread out because of persecution. It wasn't a conscious missionary endeavor to bring the gospel to these other locations. The gospel jumps the social barrier from the Jews to the Samaritans because of persecution. It was a conscious intervention of God, not a conscious missionary effort that a Jewish convert from Ethiopia hears the gospel in Acts chapter 8. And these events are notable. Uh, the, the bringing of the gospel to the Samaritans, the bringing of the gospel to a Jewish man from Ethiopia are significant. That's why they're included in the book of Acts. And yet still, for the most part, the, Jewish, the Jewishness of the early church remains. In fact, it remains almost exclusively Jewish for the first eight or so years of the church's existence. So for eight years, the church is almost exclusively Jewish, if not completely exclusively Jewish. Acts chapter 9 tells us that Peter, uh, it tells us a bit about Peter's missionary work or how Peter does ministry. And it tells us that he goes here and there doing ministry among the Jewish churches of Judea. Uh, There's not a lot of planning involved, uh, not a lot of forethought. He just goes where he's needed and he goes from place to place bringing uh, teaching about the gospel to these places. And it's possible that if God wouldn't have intervened, the church would have stayed Jewish. The church would have stayed uh, with this Jewish exclusivity for who knows how long. But Acts chapter 10 tells us something very significant taking place. Acts chapter 10 tells us about a Roman man named Cornelius. Cornelius is known in church history as the first Gentile convert to Christianity. Almost a decade after the church comes into existence, we have this man named Cornelius. God intervenes and he shares with Cornelius to go and send for this man named Peter. And he intervenes and he says to Peter, these people are going to come for you and they're going to bring you the gospel or they're going to bring you to share the gospel with Cornelius and his family. And Cornelius and his family, the first Gentiles, hear the gospel and they respond. And then something powerful happens. Acts chapter 10 tells us that the spirit falls on these Gentiles in the exact same way that it fell on the Jewish apostles back at Pentecost. This is significant because God is showing that this is a work of God, that Peter isn't off his rocker, that Peter isn't misguided by bringing the gospel to these Gentiles. The Spirit falls on them as a sign of affirmation that God is coming not just for the Jews, but he's also coming for the Gentiles. Salvation is not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. And this is crucial for our context in Acts chapter 15. So notice the response of the Jewish church when they hear what Peter has to say. Acts chapter 11. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now you would think, with a statement like that, a recognition that Gentiles have been given the opportunity for salvation as well. You would think that there would be a missionary effort. There would be a conscious decision from the early church to begin ministering to the Gentiles. You'd think that after chapter 10 of Acts, after chapter 11 of Acts, there would be a conscious moment 
conscious decision to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and yet there is no major mission. There is no focus to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It's still focusing on the Jews. That doesn't mean that Gentiles didn't start to become Christians. In fact, they, um, it's very clear from the testimony of Acts that there are a few that start to become Christians because of the testimony of what took place with Cornelius. But there wasn't a concentrated effort from the church to bring the gospel to people like me, to bring the gospel to Gentiles. Now, a few hundred miles north of Jerusalem, there was a city, a pagan city called Antioch. Antioch was pagan. It was a Gentile city, but there was a significant Jewish population there as well. And because of that significant Jewish population, the church grows rapidly, and it becomes uh, not just a place where Jews become Christians, but also Gentiles become Christians as well. And, And Antioch becomes the first place where there's a significant number of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians living together. And then we see something significant take place in Antioch. In in Acts chapter 13, something significant to two of their pastors. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Notice what the text says. The text tells us that these two men are happily serving in Antioch. They're not looking for direction for a big decision. This is just a part of what they do, a part of their ministry in Antioch. They're worshiping, they're praying, they're fasting, and then God intervenes. And God calls them to go. You might be saying, well, where does it call them to go? The text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us where they are going. It just says, go. So it appears that the decision on where to go is left up to them. Next few chapters of the book of Acts tell us about their ministry, about this mission work that Paul and Barnabas began doing throughout central Turkey, uh, and especially in a a region called the Galatia region, and, and they do this for two years. And during their ministry... They see a number of converts to Christianity, some among the Jews, but specifically a growing number of Gentiles become Christians. And it's here in central Turkey, far from the the center of Christianity, that is Jerusalem, that we begin to see this, this new formation of the church, where the church is both Jewish and Gentile, or even predominantly Gentile, here hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, from where it started. And as the number of Gentiles who are entering the faith increases, there's a new question that arises. A new question facing the church arises. How should these Gentile believers relate to the Jewish law? What is their responsibility for keeping the Jewish law? If you look at the Old Testament, those who were Gentiles, those who were not Jewish, were welcome to worship the God of Israel, but they had to keep the Jewish law in order to do so. So for, the newest, for this new church, this new movement of the Messiah... What are the expectations on these Gentiles? Are they also supposed to keep the law? Or is there something different that must take place? This is what the Council of of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 is about. Notice the first six verses, first five verses of Acts chapter 15. 
But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order for them to keep the law of Moses. Some translations say, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. You see, two things are happening here that set the, the stage for this council. One, Gentiles are coming to faith. So it's an act of God. Gentiles are coming to faith. And some Jews are responding with a statement of, that's great, but here is what is necessary to really believe. And so confusion just crops up in the church. At worst, the, church, the, the Gentiles begin to think, well, you've been sold a false bill of goods about free grace. You lied to us that this grace was free, that actually we have to keep the law in order for us to be truly saved. So that's the worst case scenario. At best, this teaching is saying that there is a hierarchical form of Christianity. Anyone can be saved freely through grace, and yet if you want to truly be God's children, if you want to truly follow God, then you will follow the law. And tension arises. This is a theological crisis. It's a situational crisis for the early church. There's a number of opinions being thrown out among the church on the relationship between the Gentiles and the Jewish law. And the church needs clarity. There needs to be a statement saying, this is what the gospel means for Gentiles. It needs to either say that Gentiles need to keep the law or that they have been given freedom in Christ that makes Jewish purity laws unnecessary. Now, from our vantage point today, this seems like a relatively easy question. After all, we have the, the gift of the New Testament. We have the book of Galatians, which is written exactly in response to this question. It's an easy question for us, and yet try for a second to put yourself in the shoes of the early church. Galatians 2 tells us just how difficult this was for the early church. Galatians 2 tells us about this confrontation between Peter and Paul, where Paul confronts Peter about something, and, and, it, and I think this is what took place. Uh, we see in Galatians chapter 2 that Peter is actually ministering to the church in Antioch. He's working among the, the, the church in Antioch, and he's eating freely with both Jews and Gentiles, and then a message comes from Jerusalem. This message comes from James, the brother of Jesus, that we'll meet later in the book of Acts, and the message contains bad news. The message says that word has gotten back to Jerusalem that Peter is eating with both Jews and Gentiles indiscriminately. He's welcoming full, into full fellowship both Jews and Gentiles. 
Now, in the first few decades of the early church, most of the hostility directed toward the church was not from Roman authorities. It was actually from the Jewish authorities. And more specifically, it was focused on those Christians who were also Jewish by, uh, by birth that refused to keep purity laws. These Jews thought that those who converted to Christianity and, and saw that they, excuse me, those Jews saw that the, the Christians who had once been Jewish, who refused to keep the purity laws, who refused to separate themselves from Gentiles, were an abomination. And so, word gets back from Antioch, where Peter is eating indiscriminately with Jewish and Gentile Christians. Word gets back to Jerusalem that this is what Peter is doing. This is what one of the leaders of the early church is doing. And persecution breaks out. Suffering breaks out because of Peter's actions. So, James sends a message to Antioch and says, Hey, Peter, I want you to to be aware of this. I I don't have an easy answer here. There's, there's no easy answer on what you should do, but I want you to be aware that your actions in Antioch are causing people here at home in Jerusalem to suffer. People are being persecuted because of your options, because of the, the freedom that we have been given in Christ. Now, if you were Peter, what would you do? People are suffering because of your decisions. Well, Peter makes a decision. Peter says, okay, well, if I can relieve the suffering of Christians back at home, I will live under these purity laws for a time. I have this freedom in Christ, but I'm going to go ahead and separate myself from the Jewish Christians and only eat with, separate myself from the Gentile Christians and only eat with Jewish Christians, and that should solve the problem. Well, there was just a problem here. Now, he may have made things better in Jerusalem, but the reality is now there's a problem among the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles are beginning to feel like they're second-class citizens because the apostle Peter, the leader of the early church, is not willing to eat with him, and all of the Jews are following Peter's example. And so now a split happens in the church. There's this unintentional mindset creeping into the church in Antioch that you can be saved by grace— But if you really want to be a Christian, you're going to have to become Jewish, too. There's a movie that came out a couple years ago. It's called Silence, and it details the horrific persecution of the church in the 17th century in Japan. And one of the things that it reveals in this movie is that one of the most effective forms of persecution performed by the Japanese government toward the early church was not death for your beliefs, not suffering for your beliefs, but actually the suffering and death of others because of your beliefs. This is how they got a number of people to recant their faith, not because they caused them to suffer, but they caused other people to suffer because of your beliefs. That's what's taking place here in the first century. That's what's taking place here with Peter and the Jews, the crisis the church is facing. People are suffering because of their actions. So what would you do? Would you choose full fellowship with Gentiles, fully realizing that other people, not you, other people would suffer, that other people would possibly die? Or do you decide to remove yourself from Jewish fellow, from Gentile fellowship? 
But if you do that, you create a, a class of Christians who aren't worthy of becoming, of being called Christians. You create an us versus them mentality. That's what the first five verses of Acts chapter 15 are describing. They're describing the tension of the early church. And this is why I say this is the most important decision facing the early church. Whatever they decide will set the trajectory of the church. Whatever they decide is going to be life-altering for the church. There's no easy decision. And maybe you're facing the same kind of decision. You're facing a decision that is life-altering. You're facing a decision that has no easy answers. Maybe it's a vocational change. Maybe it has to do with a relationship. Maybe it has to do with a, a move. Whatever the decision is facing you, maybe it's your aging parents, whatever the decision is that's facing you, there aren't easy answers, and yet you feel the tension of both sides, and you're at a loss for words. Can we learn from this church? Can we learn from Acts chapter 15? I think so. Let's take a look at uh, how God's gifts of the Spirit, the Scriptures, and the church enable the church to make a decision that honors God. Please follow along. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, it is my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things that are polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from that which has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has been in every city proclaimed, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Notice what takes place here in this council, in this decision. First, the early church, God gave the early church the spirit. The leaders of the church gathered together, and after much debate, and we don't know how long it goes on, but after much debate, Peter addresses the group. He calls everyone's attention back to the conversion of Cornelius that took place 10 years earlier. After almost a decade, he says, you know what? God's Spirit has made the decision for us. God's Spirit has made this decision relatively easy because God's Spirit fell on the Gentiles before they were circumcised before they had a chance to be circumcised, even before they were baptized. Peter doesn't point to any special revelation for this decision. He simply just says, this is how God has worked 
in the past. This is how the Spirit has worked in the past. And the same thing takes place for Paul and for Barnabas. They point to the past about how they've been working among the Jews, how they've been working among the Gentiles longer than anyone else there. And they say example after example after example of God's work, God's Spirit at work among the Gentiles during their ministry. Now, what does that mean for us today? After all, God's Spirit doesn't, uh, after all, most of our choices are amoral. They don't necessarily, we don't, can't necessarily point backward to a time where the Spirit makes the decision easy for us. But while that may be true, we should remember, we've been given God's Spirit who dwells within us. Our first week in this series, we saw one of the, the charges that God gives to his people is to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is not just simply an, an emotional sensation. Instead, it's a life that is increasingly ruled by the Spirit, a life that increasingly refre- reflects God, reflects Christ's own life. So, in your decision-making, God has given you the tool, or God has given you the Spirit to help you in your decisions, to make decisions that honor Christ, that reflect Christ, but even more more importantly than that, in the process of making those decisions to reflect Christ. God cares far more about how you reach a decision than he does about the decision you make. And so in humility, through obedience, and through prayer, seek the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit to reach your decision. Next, notice that God gave the early church the Scriptures. After this testimony from Peter and Paul and Barnabas, John, or excuse me, James, the brother of Jesus, he stands up and he confirms that what Peter, Paul, and Barnabas are saying is in line with what Scripture teaches. He points to the Old Testament, and he points to the Old Testament as a precedent for what has just been said. When you're making a decision, look to the scriptures. Remember that God has given you his will revealed in the scriptures. As you consistently immerse yourself in God's word, it'll do two things for you. As you increasingly become familiar with God's word, it'll tell you first what is right and what is wrong. But even more importantly for us, more relevant for us perhaps, is how God shapes your heart, God shapes your thinking, and makes you wise by spending time in fellowship with him through his word. So if you want to make a decision that honors God, that honors Christ, the best decision you can make right now, today, is to cultivate a relationship with him, to be in fellowship with him, to spend time reading his word, and to be transformed by the reading of that word. That's what James's words here in Acts 15 reveal to us. And finally, God gave the early church the local church. After James recites scripture, he provides a, a suggestion, a solution to their problem. He says that the Gentiles, uh, you know, were, were grateful for their, they should be granted full fellowship with the church. They should not be required to keep any sort of dietary laws or to be circumcised or anything like that. And yet, at the same time, there should be some restrictions placed on them. And the restrictions that are mentioned are restrictions concerning immorality, idolatry, 
and eating the blood. Now, we don't have time to go into this, but essentially what, there, there's good reason to believe that everything that's mentioned here in this letter to the churches is essentially tied into pagan worship of other gods. And so what is being said here in this letter to the other churches is not, hey, don't worry about being circumcised, don't worry about dietary laws, but by the way, you need to worry about dietary laws. That's not what's being said here. He's referring to the pagan worship of other gods. He's saying that Gentiles should be granted full fellowship, and yet the one thing that we cannot budge on is idolatry. They have to get rid of all sorts of idolatrous practices and habits. And how does the local church respond? The answer is found in the subsequent verse, Acts 15, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. See, James makes a suggestion, but the decision is made by the early church. It's made by the local church. God has given them the church to make this decision, this church for counsel, for wisdom, to not have to make a crucial decision in a vacuum. And so they gathered together, they discussed, they debated, and at the end of the day, verse, 12, verse 22 tells us not that they received special revelation, but verse 22 tells us, and so it seemed good to us. They made a decision based off of the counsel of the local church. You see, one of the reasons God gives us the local church, one of the reasons he gives us the local church is for difficult decisions. When you are faced with a difficult decision, you don't have to make it on your own, but you can receive counsel, you can receive wisdom, you can receive insight from people who have different gifts, different strengths, different perspectives than you do. God has given you the local church. No matter what decisions face you, you can rejoice. God has given you all the tools that are necessary. God has given you all the tools that are necessary to make a decision that honors him, just as the early church did in Acts chapter 15. If you have the Spirit, If you have the scriptures, and if you have the local church, then you have all the necessary tools to make your decision. Note briefly the the words of the letter in verse 28. Verse 28 describes this letter that is actually being sent out, and it says this, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Earlier in verse 22, it says, for it seemed good to us. And now it says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The church makes the decision... And yet they are confident it was a decision that God had led them to. There is no evidence. There is no no evidence of divine intervention. There's no evidence of God speaking, of God directing them beyond simply the spirit at work in their lives, beyond the testimony of scripture and the wisdom of the local church. And they reach their decision because God has given them all the tools that are necessary to do so. You see, each of us is going to be faced with decisions that are difficult, They could be life-altering. They'll be significant. They start at a young age, and they don't stop. And yet we can remember that in every decision, God has revealed his will. God's revealed his will to be saved, for us to be filled with his spirit and to be holy. And God has given us freedom, freedom to make decisions that honor him. Freedom to make decisions that make us more like him as long as they're in the boundaries of his revealed will. Remember, God has not charged us to find some secret hidden will for our decisions. Instead, to make a wise decision that honors him as we increasingly grow to reflect him. Because God has given us the Holy Spirit. God has given us scripture. 
and God has given us the local church to make our decisions. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself in the scriptures. We thank you for the ways that the Spirit is at work in our hearts and our lives, conforming us into the image of your Son. We ask that you would be with us now, whatever decision we make, whatever decision faces us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.